Today's show is brought to you by Zip Recruiter, the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Zip Recruiter's powerful technology finds people with the right experience for your job and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And now our listeners can try it for free at ziprecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. Restaurant or room service, what would the boss do? Either way, the boss would choose Hilton Hotels and Resorts to get down to business. And a little pleasure. Check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts and travel like the boss. This is Recode Media from the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Lydia Polgreen, in for Peter Kafka. I'm the editor-in-chief of HuffPost, but I'm here at the Vox Media Studios today in New York City. Because this is Peter's show, I will tell you what he always says. Tell someone else about this show. Tweet about it or post about it on Facebook or just tell someone in person. Today, I'm really excited to be in the studio with Radhika Jones, the editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. Radhika, welcome to Recode Media. Thank you, Lydia. It's great to be here. So, you have been the editor of Vanity Fair for how long now? It's been about nine months. Nine months. Long enough to make a baby. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Does it feel like a baby has been born? I almost wish you could go into hiding for nine months and then come out with, <laughs> come out with a baby. <laughs> the thing about the thing about Vanity Fair is, we, you know, we're publishing hourly and we're publishing monthly, and you know how it is. So all of the baby making is done kind of, in, you know, every moment. But it has been great to start to cycle through this first year and kind of get an understanding. You know, we cover so many with these core areas of coverage, um, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and Wall Street, uh, and celebrity culture also in general. And so I feel like over the course of the year, just because of certain events like the Oscars, um, and also just because of the natural uh, ebbs and flows of the news cycle, not that they ebb so much anymore, you know, you, you start to get a feel for the rhythms of the job. And so nine months in is a lot better than six months in, which is a lot better than three months in. So you took over this job from uh, one of the best-known magazine editors out there, Graydon Carter, uh, a celebrity in his own right. What's it like stepping into a role as yourself following someone who's a larger-than-life personality? Not that I personally have any experience with this, having followed Ariana Huffington at, uh, at uh, HuffPost. I think the thing that I tried to be very clear about in my own mind from the beginning was that there was no way that I could replace Graydon Carter. Um, he is still walking among us, for, for one thing, and he's an incredibly iconic and creative and innovative editor. And I think that with these jobs, you have to just have confidence that you make the job your own. The brand has existed for a long time. Um, Tina Brown was the editor before Graydon, and she too was iconic. And so I thought a lot about Tina's Vanity Fair, and, and I spent time looking at the archives and thinking about w what is the Venn diagram between the editor's sensibility and the identity of the brand. And I think that's really the challenge for me, is not, you know, do I imitate Tina? Do I imitate Graydon? I could try to do those things for a very long time, and I would fail utterly because because imitating is not how you succeed in these roles. So for me, it was more about trying to figure out what I could add to this brand to make it special in my own way. You mentioned Tina Brown, and I think I read that that you read um, her diaries, uh, which I think was one of the most delicious reads. Um, I devoured it 
basically in one sitting on a flight to India. And one of the things that struck me in reading that book was just how different the media world is now. Are you going to those kinds of parties that she goes to? Are you running the business in this kind of big ticket way that she was running it in the sort of woman in the arena? I loved reading that book. And I had an early copy because I was at the New York Times. I was on the book's desk. So we got it early. So I actually had read it before Graydon announced that he was stepping down and before anybody approached me about the job, which was good because I read it completely just as a kind of magazine fan. Mm. And it's, of course, incredibly exhilarating. And her energy level is just astonishing. And she was so young when she was doing the job, Mm. um, which I kept thinking about. But it is a completely different environment. There's no internet. So there's no, you know, she was out pounding the pavement, getting stories because that was the only way to get stories at that time. And she was also making a print magazine and that was all she was making. So when you step into this kind of job in contemporary times, you have the print magazine, but you also have the website and you have an events business as we have and you have an entire social environment where you have to assert the brand identity and engage readers and viewers and listeners. So it just, it feels like a completely different ecosystem. But the thing that sort of elemental part of it that impressed me is that just that she was after the very best story for her time, for her moment. And I feel like that is the common denominator. Can you find the story that no one else is doing in in a particular Vanity Fair way, in a particular sort of substantive and rigorous, but also entertaining way. So you you mentioned that she got the job when she was really young. I'd love to hear how how you got this job. Obviously, um, you know, Graydon announced that he was leaving. There were a number of people who were considered for the role, I'm sure. What can you tell us about the process? So I read that Graydon was stepping down, and like everyone else, I wondered what would happen. And it was about a year ago, I got an email from David Remnick, and he said... I'm reaching out to some people who I thought might be an interesting fit for the Vanity Fair job. Is that something you would like to speak about? So I wrote back, yes, please, right away. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And David, who's very generous with his time, spoke to me about it. And we talked about Tina's diaries, actually, which was a lot of fun. And so we began a conversation about it. He said, well, just, you know, jot down some thoughts. So I gave it a little thought and... Um, and was turning things over in my mind. And the next day he checked in and he said, well, where are those thoughts? And I thought, oh, okay, this is, we're doing this. Okay. <laughs> um, I have homework. So so I did indeed jot down those thoughts and, and it went on from there. And it was a really exciting thing for me to think about because it honestly just hadn't been, um, I mean, it's a dream job, but it wasn't something that I had particularly set my sights on. Mm. So I kind of came to it a little bit like, serendipitously, just the the idea of it. And I think that freed up my thinking about what it might be, but also what I might bring to the table. Yeah. I mean, you've had a really interesting career path, right? I mean, you were a reporter in Moscow at one point. You were at Time, Paris Review. Uh, you've done a lot of interesting forms of reporting, editing, literary, you know, sort of mass market as Time is. I'm curious how all of those various experiences have brought you to this point and what, how they kind of braid together in, in, in what you're trying to do at Vanity Fair. So... I, my, it's true. My first job in journalism was at the Moscow Times um, in Russia in the mid-90s. And I think about that time, I was only there for two years. 
And I began as a copy editor, which is still a skill that I take great pride in. And I think when I retire, I will just spend my free time copy editing the internet. (laughs) But the news in Russia at that time moved so quickly. And there's something about this moment that we're in right now. I mean, obviously, you know, this was in the mid-90s. The internet was at its very beginnings, that, that there were certain technological changes to the pace of news that hadn't yet happened. But it was an incredibly volatile time in Moscow. And there were wars going on with Chechnya. And there was a, there were a lot of sort of juggling alliances. And there was a, sort of the rise of the oligarchs. And, and all of these, it was like the table was being set for a lot of what we see going on in the world today in terms of certain power alliances and struggles. So it was just a really exciting time to be there and be kind of in the swirl of the news. Um, and I sort of worked all around the paper. You know, it was it, people came in and out because it was this very small but dynamic English language paper in Moscow. At a certain point, I was the restaurant critic, which may still be my best ever job. <laughs> I was, I will say, a terrible restaurant critic, and I had no palate. But in a way, it was more like a sociological survey because there was really no restaurant culture in Moscow at the time. So it was just every week was sort of an adventure with my dining companion. So I I learned a lot of just almost about just like being curious and being open to experiences. And that was my first experience with journalism was like that like world events are happening, but in this very volatile way. And my center of gravity had shifted from the U.S. So that was very informative for me. But I did realize that I wasn't going to stay there for, for the rest of my life. So I came back to the States and I started a graduate degree at Columbia, a PhD track in English, which I did end up finishing, but I, but I ended up working in magazines throughout. And as you said, I worked at literary magazines, visual arts, kind of all over the place. I just kind of became a magazine junkie. I like project-based work. I like deadlines. I like the adrenaline of news. And I basically just tried to take opportunities and jobs where I felt I was going to learn something from the people around me. And as you know, there are a a lot of incredibly intelligent but also curious and innovative people in our field. So I was lucky to be able to move from place to place and just keep learning. I mean, there were things, you know, I went on press when I was working at the Paris Review, which is a literary journal. Philip Gurevich was the editor at the time, and and he felt it was very important for one of us to be on press because we were publishing photography, and we were doing it on matte paper, not glossy paper, which which means that it's harder to reproduce the colors in the way that the photographer might have intended. So I went on press to Winnipeg seven times (laughs) for the Paris (laughs) Review, and I think I saw all the possible sites to see in Winnipeg. I was there every season, but just to be in a printing press and watch something come off the presses, it's very romantic, but it also, it's just, just, I feel like I, I got to touch through all of these various jobs. I touched not only a lot of subject matter, but a lot of um, parts of the of the work, like the actual making of a magazine or a journal in that case, or you know the creation of a microsite for a digital project or something like that. I've always been an omnivore in terms of how things get done. So, in a way, the dotted line from job to job is a little bit of a zigzag, and I can't say that I ever had a master plan, but when. I started having conversations about Vanity Fair. It did feel that there was something about the eclectic nature of my experience that actually worked for this role because it's sort of an eclectic and just intellectually curious magazine. And it's interesting because when I mean, you obviously, I, I think you're the first 
doctor uh, person with a PhD to edit Vanity Fair, I suspect. Maybe. I don't know, actually. We should, we'll, we'll find but out. I mean, I think, I think the, you know, the, when, when the initial uh, sort of shock of your name emerged and people are like, wait, who? Oh, yeah, that very glamorous woman who does, runs the Time 100. Isn't she terribly literary? Isn't she incredibly highbrow? Um, how is she going to manage the high-low mix that's so important to Vanity Fair? It's so funny because the things you work for in your life, you you know, they change on a dime. It's like, yes, I am terribly literary. I worked so hard to be highbrow. Um, no, I love. It's uh, I am absolutely a literary person, but I also will sit on my phone and look at slideshows of Prince George, which I feel is you know, it's like it makes me human. I love to do it. I think that honestly, most people have that range of interest, but I certainly do. And and I think that. The common denominator, again, for Vanity Fair is, you know, there are a lot of news outlets that do serious investigative journalism, which the magazine has always been known for. There are fewer places that publish really high-impact photography, and I think that's a core area of strength and one that we want to build on. But I think that as long as – if we are telling a story well, then the story can be about the high or the low. But the thing that makes it a quality story, that makes it a Vanity Fair story, is in the telling of it. Mm. So it feels to me – I don't have a problem reconciling that at all. It it feels. I mean, the other thing is uh, that I I think I've always had eclectic taste in music and books and all of those things. And I think that that's kind of um, that's really at the heart of it for me in that high and low. What's your biggest low brow guilty pleasure? Oh my. That's Let's a see. very loaded question. Um, I mean, well, we were you. talking about egg McMuffins before we went on the air. So. <laughs> well, my, mine is mine is Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Okay, that's a good one. Well, that's no, a good but one. we got we got to have yours. I have to think about it a little bit. This doesn't really count, but I will say one of my go-to shows is the Great British Baking Show. I, I think of that as therapy in the current right. uh, in the current environment. Right, um, it's uplift. It's it's uplift. It's, I like how they're so nice to each other. They're super nice to each other. Everything looks tasty. Even mm. the things that don't work look tasty. We'll, we'll stay with the baking show, but if something else comes to mind, I'm going to let you know. Interject and okay. let me know. We're going to take a quick break now for a word from our sponsors. Through the magic of podcast editing, here's Peter Kafka to tell you about those. We'll be back after this. Today's show is brought to you by ZipRecruiter, which is the presenting sponsor of Recode Media. Thank you, ZipRecruiter. You know what's not smart? Watching cable news every day and pretending it is executive time. You know what is smart? Using ZipRecruiter to hire for your business. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them for you. Their powerful technology scans thousands of resumes to identify people with the right skills, education, and experience for your job, and actively invites them to apply so you get qualified candidates fast. And ZipRecruiter spotlights the top candidates for your job so you never miss out on a great match. That's why ZipRecruiter is rated number one by employers in the U.S. Who rates them number one? Trustpilot. They rated hiring sites with more than 1,000 reviews. That's who. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Now, our listeners can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash Peter. Today's show is brought to you by Hilton. When you travel for work, do you stay by the airport or do you stay downtown? Do you take your clients out for dinner? Do you have room service? Should you pack your swimsuit? How do you answer these questions? Just ask yourself, what would the boss do? Here's the answer. The boss would choose Hilton. Hilton has modern meeting spaces and amazing pools and everything else you need to get down to business and a little pleasure. So check out Hilton Hotels and Resorts 
and travel like a boss. And we're back with Radhika Jones. So you were talking about photography and storytelling. Those are two places where I think you've made some pretty striking um, choices. For example, I believe the first cover that you fully edited and 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 brought into the world was the the Lena Waithe cover. That was a big moment, and it kind of landed with a with a real bang. Can you tell me a little bit about how that came to be? And, and strikingly, not just having a queer black woman who's really on the rise in in Hollywood, but you also had an unusual choice of writer to tell her story. So could you t- tell me a little bit about that? So I rem- I had watched Master of None and I just thought Lena was so tremendous. I just hadn't seen someone like her on the screen. She was so funny and we loved that show. And And so I was sort of a fan of that performance and of her um, and particularly of that episode that she ended up winning an Emmy for. And then I watched her speech at the Emmys and it was very moving. And so that, that was about a year ago. And, so, and then I started talking to Connie and asked about this job. And, I, you know, at of course, if you're thinking about taking on a job where you have to produce magazine covers, one of the first questions that you ask yourself is, well, who would go on the cover of my magazine? And I always had Lena on my mind just because she was very present in the culture in this way that felt very fresh. And I, and I feel like in this day and age, if you have at your disposal a magazine cover, you should try to use it. And I, and I don't mean to just to provoke or even just to surprise, but really to kind of bring forward or, or shed light on something that you think is worth talking about and worth thinking about. So then when I actually took the role, all of these things had started happening in Hollywood. I mean, every, so much changed in that period of time when I was literally having conversations about Vanity Fair. So much was changing about the areas that we cover in Hollywood because of the Weinstein reporting and everything. So it was just this great moment of flux, and I felt like the thing that was grounding for me was to think about where the momentum was and who was kind of coming out of, uh, you know, all of this, the messiness that that was being exposed about the way Hollywood worked. It just felt valuable to think about the future and people who were working in a different way. And, And Lena Waithe is a creator as well as an actor, and she had won this historic Emmy. And and it seemed like she was really busy working, and I liked that. And so when it came to thinking about that cover, which was the April cover, I just, I don't know, it seemed to, it, I wouldn't say it was obvious necessarily, but it just seemed to me like she, her work aligned with the kind of thing that I wanted to be thinking about. And so we, um, we did that shoot, Annie Leibovitz did the shoot, which was great. And we went to Jackie Woodson to do the profile, a, a literary writer, a writer of um, young adult fiction, among other things. And memoir. And memoir. And someone who I felt would, I'm, I'm, I've always been interested as an editor in cross-casting. So someone who's written a lot about politics, have that person write about someone in music or, or have a fashion writer write about celebrity or something. Because I do feel like th- that in the intersection of those worlds, that's, that's where Vanity Fair lives and something that we can offer. But also it just brings things out differently um, and different conversations emerge and and you never know. I mean, you never know if that person's going to be interested in the subject or, or, or what. But Jackie was interested, and it it just worked out. It fe- it just felt like an interesting match and something that I hadn't seen before. And I come back to that idea that if to be in an editorial role the way that we are, the thing that makes it worthwhile is to think, oh, I'm 
you know, I'm using this opportunity to put something in the world that maybe hasn't been there before in the same way. And I mean, I think if I look back at the covers since you took over as editor in chief, Meghan Markle, maybe perhaps an obvious one, uh, Meghan and Harry, uh, but you know Kendrick Lamar, and then uh, this this month's cover, Michael B. Jordan. That's a pretty high proportion of of people of color. They're they're younger people. They're uh, voices that wouldn't necessarily um, have been seen with such frequency on the cover of, um, of of Vanity Fair. So I think that's that's been really remarkable. I want to ask you about sort of the case for magazines in general. And there's a really interesting juxtaposition to my mind. I feel like the internet is the perfect medium and particularly social media is the perfect medium to transmit the kind of meme-like quality that a magazine cover has, mm. right? And yet, the disaggregation that the internet has brought to media really kind of pulls at the seams of right. the idea of the magazine. So this is true of tabloid newspapers as well. So it's like the best of times because the, your um, your billboard travels in a way that it really couldn't before, even when it was on newsstands. It's, right. you know, in, a, in the palm of everyone's hand. But the thingness of the magazine has, has been in many ways kind of fragmented and pulled apart. Mm-hmm. How, how do you wrestle with that? It's funny because as a consumer, I I feel all of that. I feel it viscerally. I mean, I do. I see the place I see magazine covers is on my phone. I see my own magazine covers on my phone. I see other people's. I react to them. And and that really, I think a lot about that. You know, I think anyone in my role, even five years ago, was thinking about newsstand. And I just feel like they're aren't a lot of newsstands now. I mean, it's great. If you are if you have a great newsstand seller, that's awesome. That's wonderful. Um, and everyone should go to the newsstand and buy Vanity Fair. Uh, and I'll say that again before our time is up. But but I also just, I do think that there is that, that, you know, the amplifying power of technology in terms of getting those images out and getting that identity out is really powerful. So I guess my answer to your question is these days, if you have a brand like Vanity Fair that is a legacy print publication, but also a player in the digital space and um, and the event space and all of that, you know, you do have to do all things. Um, that is the job. And so, you know, the challenge for us is to do the best work that we can do tailored to the pace and momentum of each place. And I, in a way, I feel like the print magazine, like the 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 opportunity for a print magazine now is to raise the bar even higher. Because if you're working on a monthly schedule and you're assigning and commissioning photography, which no matter how great photography looks online or on an iPad or, or wherever you're looking at it, it's very seldom, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like digital-only outlets are very, are very seldom commissioning high-impact photojournalism or portraiture or anything like that. It really, that still could sort of is the province of the print. Yep, I um, think that's I The think print that's community. Right. And I think it's really important. I mean, we're all photographers now, of course. Mm. Um, but it matters when a photojournalist composes a certain kind of picture out of a war zone or a, or a portrait photographer takes a certain kind of very meaningful portrait. Um, and, man, and that's core to Vanity Fair. So to my mind, it's like the opportunity for me is to sort of perfect the magazine form, make it beautiful, make it luxurious as a reading experience. Um, all of the care that's taken when you don't have unlimited space the way that you do online, but you actually have to fit something to a page, and so you really have to weigh the value of words in a sentence and sentences in a paragraph. That craft is very dear to me, and I think it's worthwhile because I think, I mean, we still, you know, we circulate at, at 1.2 million. There are a lot of people who are reading 
the print magazine, and they deserve the very best that, that they can get. And it's something that is also a timestamp. You know, it is a cultural artifact. And I think the things that have mattered to me, many things that have mattered to me since I took this job, and people have been telling me sort of how they engage with Vanity Fair and what they love about it and what they don't love about it, past and present. But one of the things I love hearing is, I'm keeping this one. This one is a key. I'm keeping this one. You can do that with a magazine. Yeah, I mean, National Geographic is, is a great example of that, right? People right. who just keep, you know, old copies of it. Um, and, and I still have old copies of magazines that inspired me um, in my career. And this is after, you know, I live in New York City, so I've moved like eight times. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and yes, like some of those magazines went away, but I still have this core, these core, this core shelf of magazines that really hit that bar. And it's fun also. It's project-based work. And it goes very much hand-in-hand. Hand. I mean, we have a much more integrated operation now than, than it was a year ago in terms of the digital staff and the print staff. I mean, I wouldn't even categorize them in that way. It's really the Vanity Fair staff. So there's a lot going back and forth in terms of where story ideas are coming from and, and who's doing the work and who's doing the writing and the editing. Like, these staffs are blended. But we have to make all these different things. And so ideally, you you know, you're just like making them to the very best of your ability. So let's turn to the the business of making magazines. Obviously, you came in, I think, with a significant expectation that that, um, you know, costs would come down at uh, at Vanity Fair. Having read uh, Tina Brown's diaries, I know what the world was like back then. Um, I don't know how exactly what it was like during the world of Graydon Carter, but, you know, you'd have this, this kind of caricature in your mind of very expensive lunches, black cars chauffeuring everyone around, unlimited location budgets, um, business class travel for everyone. And correct me if I'm wrong, but my sense is that there is a desire to to bring that into uh, more into line with the realities of publishing as it as it exists today. And more generally, I think Condé Nast has been on a on a trajectory of what seems from the outside like decline. You're closing titles, consolidation, things like that. Um, how's the business going? Well, I will say, reading Tina's diaries. <laughs> was very entertaining on that score. Just as someone who's worked, I mean, let alone Vanity Fair, but who's worked in the business over the last uh, 20 years, I guess. Wow. Um, and I've been all over it. I've been in, at newspapers. I've been at a weekly magazine at time. I think what I take away from the arc of that experience is that there are ways to innovate. I mean, there definitely, there are titles that are that are lost to us now. They are gone. Um, and there are titles I still miss. I miss Gourmet. And so not everyone makes it. But I do think that in terms of brand like Vanity Fair, the legacy is something that works in our favor. Um, there are assets. I mean, I thought about this. You know, I thought about this when I was thinking about the job because you know, it's something, It I, I think back in the day, if you were the editor, you just didn't worry about the business side of it. And, and that's just not true anymore. Um, what, what percentage of your time do you spend thinking about the economic sort of challenges or opportunities of Vanity Fair? I probably spend 100% of my time thinking about editorial and 100% thinking about the business. <laughs> and sounds, so that's 200%. That sounds really familiar and completely <laughs> right. accurate right. based on I my mean, experience. It's like, it's almost, you know, it, it's, I, th I just think for people of our generation, it's almost harder to 
split them apart because you're thinking about the vitality of the product. And those two things are related in my mind. But there are values to a legacy publication that I hold very dear. For example, the opportunity to work with an archive. Vanity Fair is an amazing archive. And that is just a huge asset to us. And so and so when, when we think about the challenges of the business, you know, one of the challenges of the business is just that there was a very clear model that used to be the case. And it was a very straightforward advertising model. And that's what powered... Um, Tina's Vanity Fair, sub- subscriptions too, but really it was an advertising model. And the truth is now we just have to diversify. And so that's already happening. I mean, we put up a paywall this spring, which has been very encouraging, successful. And that's about, um, you know, we have a, we st- still do have a robust advertising business, but we also want to think very seriously about what our consumer revenue picture could be because... There are a lot of people out there who are very attached to what we do. And I remember from my days as a freelancer, um, the philosophy that if you set a value to your work, people will believe that you are worth it. And I think, you know, personally, I was very struck by that advice, you know, when I was a young, scrappy editor roaming all around town looking for work. But I think it's true of, of content, too. And so I think really for me, and maybe this is true for Condé Nast writ large, but I can speak mostly for myself. It's really about just trying to think creatively about where, how can we, we know that we will not be able to ride on a solely advertising business for the rest of our days, or rather if we do, the rest of our days will not be terribly long. And I care about this content and I, and I care about the opportunities that it presents, not just for me and my staff, but for the people we cover and the stories we can tell. So it's, you know, so it's part of the job to think about how we can change that model. Have you gleaned any insights from your experience with the paywall about what motivates people to um, to sign up? I mean, is it, I got to know the latest inside dope from the White House from Gabe Sherman? Is it the big profile? Is it, or is it some combination? So the great news has been that it is a combination. And I think that's a real, that's a strength for us. Um, and it's something that, again, is very encouraging because the mix really matters to our readers. Like they they want to, because there are a lot of places where you can go for the one thing and where you can do a really deep dive or, you know, in politics or in celebrity news or what have you. But I think it seems from the data that we have that what people appreciate about Vanity Fair is that they can be in an environment where they're being served multiple different kinds of dishes, um, but all with this sort of same level of quality and I come back to the word entertainment, like the in the writing of it, in the tone, in the voice. So that's been great to see because we do care a lot about covering all of our different worlds and also finding the intersections between them. Your editorship has coincided with the Me Too era in Hollywood. Vanity Fair, obviously, huge impact in in Hollywood. Um, It's one of the main subjects that you're known for and cover aggressively, both the business of Hollywood and the celebrities themselves and the culture around them. How have you approached um, Hollywood in this this time? It was truly fascinating. Again, I go back to a year ago just to to think about what Vanity Fair could mean or could do in this era that was ch- that was just changing rapidly under our feet. You could argue that this magazine played a major role in the creation of the celebrity industrial complex, and it and it's it's very much part of that world. But also, 
you know, it's, it's our job and it's appropriate for us to hold that world to account. So for me, what felt like an opportunity to me was that it meant that all of that, that establishment, the, the kind of codes of the way things were done in Hollywood, um, the certain aspects of the clubbiness of it, certain impressions about what would fly and what wouldn't or what, what kinds of movies would succeed and what wouldn't. All those things have been being picked apart. It's Me Too, but it's also this is the year of Black Panther. You know, this is the year of Crazy Rich Asians. Like there are just all of these truisms about Hollywood that I don't think are actually true anymore or at the very least they bear interrogation. And it's it's fun and exciting and intellectually exciting for me to think about how Vanity Fair can pursue some of those storylines because I think that audiences perceive the change. Um, certainly we read all about it in the news, but I think that we're in the middle of a very dynamic and kinetic cultural moment and that's sort of the perfect place for us. I think that some folks would ask, um, Vanity Fair has, has a really sort of conflicted relationship here, right? It's, it is one of the practitioners, the, the prime practitioners of the celebrity profile, which requires access, which requires negotiation, which, um, you know, in, in some ways can make you a less aggressive scrutinizer of, mm-hmm. um, of the networks of power in Hollywood. You know, Vanity Fair um, didn't break the Harvey Weinstein story, the New York Times and the New Yorker did, despite Vanity Fair having a really aggressive um, past in investigative journalism. Do you think that's shifting now? Is that something that you'd 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 like to see greater scrutiny of these power networks um, in a kind of investigative reporting kind of way? I think it's shifting, and I think that all journalists, or at least a lot of us now, it's funny. It's almost like the the analogy in politics is, makes it interesting to me. At a certain point, when certain kinds of stories in our current moment, one has to ask oneself whether the access is helpful to the story or hurts the story? You know, does having access to Donald Trump get you closer to the truth about Donald Trump? Or is the right around really the way to, you know, to get at the truth about him? And I think we've kind of seen compelling arguments on both sides. And so that's sort of how I think of, about it story by story. And I, and I think, you know, when when we're all talking about stories and sort of what to pursue, it's kind of, you know, sometimes the thing to do is to sit down with the person and talk to them and hear all about it. And... Sometimes that's not the story that you need or want. And so I think for me, it's very much about figuring out, like, how are we going to serve our readers? Where do we need to put our investigative energy? And access isn't the be-all and end-all of journalism about Hollywood anymore. Of course, celebrities are rioting against it. They, um, the, I don't know if you saw in the New York Times Magazine had a profile of Bradley Cooper where he, the the writer, um, one of the great profile writers working right now, um, Taffy Ackner, he basically said, refused to cooperate <laughs> with, the, with the writing of the profile. So, um, so that that creates its own um, its own issues. So, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the new establishment list, which just came mm-hmm. out. Top of the list was a surprise. Um, 
how did you put this list together and how is this year, given everything that's going on, you know, obviously Me Too, the craziness of the Trump administration, you know, a world on fire. Um, how did you put this list together? So it's amazing. When I got to Vanity Fair, they showed me this machine that they have where you put all the data in and then you <laughs> crank it and it comes out with this ranked list <laughs> and it's total science. It's amazing. I knew it existed. <laughs> well, it should be said, you do have some experience in list making. You <laughs> Worked on the Time 100, which is, I think, a yeah. very um, fascinating exercise in in list making. So you you come by this honestly. Yes, I'm, I have made many lists in my day. I, I'm a big believer in the list. Actually, I feel like lists are useful. They're useful for me in my life. Um, I love to see. You know, it's just a spectator sport, but I have all the year end lists and what books and everything. So I think lists are a great way to take a snapshot of a moment in time. And the new establishment has these two conflicting words in the name, new and establishment. And I feel like that's exactly what we saw on display over this past year. And it was in Hollywood when, as you had people sort of literally being toppled from their pedestals, but also in Silicon Valley and certainly in Washington and in Wall Street too. And so it was kind of, it was a great year to be involved in this particular list making because it felt like there was a lot of newness to go along with the establishment. And even the establishment people are kind of doing new things they're being forced to. So someone like Bob Iger, who's certainly been on this list before, his news cycle this year is very different from what it has been in the past with the, in the, past with the acquisition of Fox. So we felt like there was opportunity for some fresh faces, fresh voices. I think a, with a list like this, you wanted to have momentum. Um, or you want to be able to capture some momentum and point readers toward, you know, where the energy is. And so we have the new CEO of the brand new CEO of Times Up um, and the core Times Up group on this list. And we have the kind of rule breakers in politics on the left who are rewriting that playbook, whether they win or lose in the midterms. I think, you know, the, um, they've changed the conversation about what progressivism is and, and what the Democratic Party um, might represent in the coming presidential election. And, um, and yes, at the top of the list, we have a taciturn... Uh, <laughs> Talk about an in, uncooperative uh, profile <laughs> an uncooperative subject. profile subject. The, the man everyone wants to profile, Robert Mueller. Exactly. <laughs> who is, uh, uh, I think, probably the hardest working man in Washington right now. And whose findings might change the course of history or not. We'll have to see. Hmm. Yeah. And you'll be holding an event around this. Um, this uh, yes. So we have a summit in Los Angeles next week, and it's a couple of days of programming on all sorts of topics. Um, we are talking to, sort of thinking of a few different kinds of panels. We're talking to the um, leadership of the New York Times uh, about. I saw that the cousins, the three cousins, the three cousins, all together cousins for yes. The first, I think for the first time being interviewed together. I think so. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And sort of what their year has been like. And uh, we were talking to the new CEO of Goldman Sachs 10 years after the financial crisis and kind of what the future of that organization looks like. We are talking to Bob Iger. Mm -hmm. um, actually, Doris Kearns Goodwin will be interviewing him, which will be fun. And also... Yeah, some other treats. One conversation that caught my eye was uh, Hannah Gadsby inter uh, talking to Monica Lewinsky. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, that's going to be a really interesting conversation between the two of them. I'm really excited about that one. Hannah Gadsby, of course, is the breakout comedian who's um, 
Netflix special this summer. Well, she was touring, and then her Netflix special kind of like snapped everyone's heads about sort of what comedy is in the current moment. And Monica Lewinsky, who actually wrote this amazing piece for us earlier in the year about Me Too and sort of her experience, her sort of overlapping experience in that vein, um, is just very thoughtful about a lot of the issues that Hannah addresses in her work. And so I think, I feel like that will be a very timely and intriguing conversation. Hannah's also very funny. Which, which is great. Which is great. <laughs> <laughs> we, need, we, need, we need some fun. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Radhika, for coming on to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Before we go, one more time, tell someone about this show. And if you want to tell me what you thought of my guest hosting and be nice, you can tweet me at, at lpolgreen. Radhika, where can people find and follow you online? Instagram. Radhika Jones. It's true. Radhika's content on Instagram is very, very strong. Thanks to our sponsors and to Cadence 13 and Vox Media for selling those ads. Thanks to Joel Robbie, who edits the show, and to the producers, Golda Arthur and Eric Johnson. This is Recode Media, and we'll see you next week.